0: Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done.
1: The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and Premier Sponsor q Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang.
2: in San Francisco and this is Bloomberg Technology coming up live in the next hour. It has been a tough year for tech titans everywhere, but there is one mega standout and that is Mark Zuckerberg, his $71 billion wealth wipeout and how much the metaverse weighs on that loss this hour. Plus, how Apple is quietly backing an association that brands itself as giving a voice to small business app developers. This as big tech comes under increasing scrutiny in Washington. And Climate Week is now underway in New York City. We're going to take a look at one tech company helping other businesses fight climate change by taking a harder look at their own carbon footprint. I want to bring in Brent Thill of Jefferies. Brent, we were just talking earlier about the big personal cost. This has come uh, when it comes to Mark Zuckerberg's wealth. Um, you know, when are you going to realize, uh, when are you going to decide if this pivot was really worth it?
3: It's still years out. Uh, Emily, I think they've said the, the road to the metaverse is going to take you know, multiple, multiple years and it's not just Facebook. It's the the whole tech ecosystem that's going to drive this forward. So this isn't going to be an overnight success. And then remember, you have the, the economy, which is pulling back, the first thing companies do when the macro economy gets tougher is they cut their ad dollars. So all social media, Snap, Twitter, Facebook, you go across the board, right, they're all feeling the pain as a global macro dims you're going to see less ad dollars flow so there's a double whammy right now the metaverse investment combined with the headwind of of the macro and and I think for many in tech right now it's a it's it's a tough road ahead uh, obviously a lot of these stocks already embedded a lot of the bad news but what we're finding in this market is that uh, the more bad news that keeps coming, these stocks really aren't embedding it ahead of time, they continue to drift lower. And that's across tech, this isn't just a a meta issue. So that continues to be a big drag uh, for tech in the the short term.
2: Do you think meta should consider spinning off businesses like Instagram, for example, where there's just seemingly potentially a more reliable future profit engine?
3: I don't think spending's gonna change anything. Uh, I think, you know, many have asked on Amazon, why wouldn't they just spend AWS off? And ultimately, you don't wanna, you know, you know, the analogy of you don't wanna lose your star student in your household because it helps other the other kids in the house, right? So if you think about AWS and Amazon or for, for Facebook with, with Instagram, it's their star right now. So I don't think they necessarily wanna lose the star at this point. I, I don't think that's a, a, a primary driver. Uh, at, at this point it's it 's a possibility, and certainly you can make the case you know for many many tech companies that they could consider that at this point but again i I think what we 're dealing with is a global tech storm that 's impacting everyone, and this isn 't going to change you know anything in the short term. Investors right now are out of the space they want to see signs of recovery. And and so I think this is a broader topic that that goes beyond uh, just uh, just just Facebook. But I don't I don't think an Instagram split off is is in the works.
2: Right. But what does Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, Alphabet, what do they have that Meta doesn't have?
3: Well, Amazon's got a powerhouse in software. When you think about AWS, it's their profit engine. It's their biggest source of growth, and it's their, their most durable piece of of the business. And and so why would you want to lose that business? And spin it off we can see it we know the numbers it's embedded uh, in in the business we can see it i think the challenge for for instagram is we don't know all the exact numbers and so that's what's hard to ascribe a value for it and some of the parts and, and so i think that that is the difference at in amazon for microsoft you know, many of their clouds are intertwined between the operating system and the cloud, Azure, Office. A lot of these clouds are intertwined. They're not gonna spin that off. Many had talked when they spin the entertainment business off, and I think they were pretty clear they're keeping it. So I, I don't think we're gonna see a big shakeup in terms of spinoffs because the market's gone down. This is a global macro pullback. The tech industry has to, to, to you know, uh, weather the storm, if you will, in the short term. And I think many of the multiples have already been been impaired. Uh, so perhaps we can see it at some point, but uh, that's not really been a question we've been getting from uh, investors at this point. I think the number one question is, when does this thing turn around? And I think uh, many still believe we can be in for a wild ride for tech into early 23 before technology comes really acknowledge the weakness in the overall uh, global environment. Many have, have not. They have not taken down guidance. They've not lowered the the bar and until the bar is lower, no investor wants to jump in the pool until they know the pool is safe.
2: So, Brett, we've got our big Bloomberg Tech Summit coming up in London, and we're gathering some content for our Markets Live blog. I have a question for you for that. Do you believe in the metaverse, and do you believe it'll change how businesses and people interact with each other in two years? That's the time frame. Yes or no?
3: No, I do not. I think it's going to be longer <laughs> out. I think it's going to take right. time. What I about think- for the
2: rest of yeah. the year? Do you- Go ahead.
3: Uh, yeah I, th- I think that, that this is a multi-year journey and, and remember it's you know this is the remaking of the internet it, it's it's the remaking of these experiences it's you know ways that we can engage uh, as, as in business is a way that doctors and patients can engage it's the way that that contractors and and their their clients can engage on, on, on the site I mean there there is elements of the metaverse today that that, that make sense but I, I think it's still a long ways out off. And I think when investors here a new a new wave is coming. They suddenly throw it on their model and think it's going to be immediate overnight. I, I'm I'm very bullish about the opportunity set, but I'm I actually think the opportunity is going to take longer to to come uh, in, into the fold, uh, and it'll take it'll take time. That that's uh, it'll take longer than two years first to really see this in a big way.
2: All right, Brett Phil, Jeffrey's tech sector le- leader. Brett, always good to have you with us. Thank you for stopping by. Thank you. terms inching ever closer you might be able to bet on them and make real money it has been years in the making and now the CFTC is weighing a plan that could let people place as much as $25,000 on which political party will control Congress. That's the proposal from the predictions market operator, Kalshi, the first regulated exchange for trading on events. Its co-founder and CEO, Tariq Mansour joins me now. So why do you want to get into election betting, Tarek? It's
4: a great question, Emily, and thanks for having me today. Um, so election markets, or elections more broadly, uh, are the single, one of the single biggest sources of economic risk of the country. And going back to Kalshi's mission, our mission is democratizing access to hedging tools, basically tools and financial instruments that allow people and small businesses to hedge risks that relate to their day-to-day. There's nothing that exposes people and individual businesses to risk like an election, so that's why we're going for it.
2: You could place as much as twenty-five thousand dollars on which party wins Congress. That's a lot of money. Talk to me about how you think this plays out. Uh, say this gets approved ahead of the midterms.
4: It's actually a very interesting uh, uh, point. Um, so I'll go back a little bit to the history and how, how we started Calshi. So uh, you know, one of the, the the idea came from one of uh, my time at Goldman in 2016, uh, where we actually structured. Um, derivative or exotic products that allowed big institutions to hedge election risks. These products were trading in the hundreds of millions, sometimes billions of dollars. Right? So when you compare it to that, 25K is actually quite a small number um, when you compare it to, to sort of the big amounts are currently, and at the time, and currently being traded on uh, elections. You know The hedging needs of people and businesses are big. You know Right now we're starting with a smaller uh, subset of the population, which is individual and small businesses with smaller hedging needs. And we felt like 25K is an appropriate limit to, to basically go for uh, ahead of the midterms.
2: There's a broader philosophical question at play here, which is: Do you think betting on elections is good for democracy, and could it influence the democratic process at all in a negative way?
4: It's a great question. So, you know, any financial innovation, uh, since uh, you know, I would say the dawn of time, had had ethical considerations, right? Insurance, when it came in, was like, oh, is this, is this, is it okay to bet on human lives? I was the insurance is very important today. It was the same thing with green futures at the time in 1900s. Let's talk about elections. Elections are actually very broadly traded in democracies like the UK, Ireland, New Zealand and Australia without any evidence at all of any sort of negative impacts. We have also had platforms like Predicted, which for eight years in the U.S. have allowed people to trade on elections, also no clear evidence of bad uh, or negative impact. On the contrary, the things that we've seen, and you know, this is why you know, our proposal has been getting a lot of support and uh, positive comments from organizations, um, uh, economic, uh, economic professors and academics and others, uh, what we've seen is that the markets are used because they're a source of truth Um, about what is actually happening with the midterms. And with polling average accuracy decreasing over the last 10 years, this is a mechanism that allow us to actually get more informed, allow people to get more informed about what actually is about to happen and would allow to reduce polarization. Actually, one interesting comment that I want to mention is from Professor Jason Furman at Harvard who who served under the Obama administration and talked in his comment letter about how the administration under Obama used these markets to inform public policy and forecast different outcomes based on the decisions they were making.
2: Interesting. So you think this would be better than polls uh, for democracy?
4: I think, I definitely think this can be better than polls. And actually, you know, people don't need to believe me. They can see the proof is in the pudding. Um, One example is our inflation markets over the last year have outperformed the Economist survey, uh, well, pretty much nine out of the last ten times. And so these markets are more accurate, uh, accurate than polls because In polls, people can say anything, and obviously the samples can be biased, etc. and we're seeing that with elections. You know, the polls are contradicting each other and other things, whereas with the marketplace, like any financial marketplace, people have skin in the game, and they're more incentivized to say the truth, which makes these uh, markets essentially more accurate than any other alternatives.
2: Now, one of your competitors predicted had an application for elections betting that I believe was rejected by the CFTC. What makes you think the CFTC is going to approve yours? And what kind of questions have they been asking you?
4: It's a great question. Actually, that company was Nadex in 2012. Um, And I think, you know, over the last decade, things have changed. A lot of the assumptions that the Commission had made at the time have been sort of invalidated, but a lot of the activity that has been happening over the last 10 years on the platform predicted, which has shown that actually none of the negative consequences that would come from these markets would happen. And on the contrary, these markets are in the public interest because of this forecast that they're bringing to the marketplace and because they're they're allowing people and businesses to hedge Risks that tie them to the elections in industries like energy, healthcare, climate, and other types of industries.
2: All right. So, if this gets approved, when do you think that happens, and and what are the odds?
4: That's a great question. Um, so, the CFC is set to make a decision by October twenty-eighth. Um, things are trending in the right direction. Uh, the comment period and the comment letters have been overwhelmingly positive towards this proposal. Things have changed. Um, you know, I, I'm gonna quote uh, Professor Coleman Strom that talks about this in, in an article where he says that investors are ready, the public is ready, it's really a question about whether regulators are ready. Um, I cannot talk specifically about the odds, we're going through the regulator, regulatory process, uh, but I do hope that regulators are ready and we'll be ready to go at least on the cash side once this gets approved
2: sense of, of just how big the callsheet platform is today and how much bigger you think it can get, uh, you know, by expanding into some of these additional areas?
4: So as you know, we've been launched for a little less than a year, uh, and it really feels like we're just getting started. Uh, we've listed over 4,000 markets so far, uh, so I, I would say we're probably the fastest, or definitely the fastest uh, derivatives exchange in terms of listing markets. Uh, this last month, we've reached 10 million contracts traded on the exchange, and we've been growing really fast. Obviously, with the upcoming elections, these numbers are going to, you know, uh, go up by a few orders of magnitude. So really excited for what's ahead.
2: All right, well, we'll be watching Kalshi co-founder and CEO Tarek Mansoor. Thank you for joining us. Okay. While well, Instacart reportedly plans to focus its IPO on selling employee shares instead of raising capital for itself, according to the Wall Street Journal, Instacart executives have told per- prospective investors they don't plan to issue many new shares in the public offering. The company provides online grocery shopping services. And coming up, we're going to take a deep dive into Apple's influence over a trade group that represents app developers and how its lobbying agenda tracks very closely with that of Apple. What does it mean? That's next. This is Bloomberg.
1: at cartereconomicforum.com.
2: The App Association brands itself as the leading voice for thousands of app developers around the world. In fact, however, the vast majority of its funding comes from Apple and the iPhone maker plays a dominant behind-the-scenes role in shaping the group's policy positions. Bloomers Emily Birnbaum has been diving deep into this and joins us now for more. So, Emily, first of all, talk to us why this app association and understanding its role in the broader Washington lobbying ecosystem matters. I think that um, the app association and
6: Apple's uh, power over the group is representative of a larger trend in uh, lobbying by the big tech companies as they come under greater scrutiny from Washington. They're pouring more and more money into these, you know, nonprofits, quote unquote, grassroots groups, you know, groups that represent more sympathetic um, characters than some of the largest and richest companies in the world, um, and you know, Apple's uh, relationship with the App Association is only a a small um, sliver of it, but it is representative of how a lot of lobbying looks right now.
2: So talk to us about Apple's role, how much funding they provide and how much influence they exert. So um, I spoke with a lot of former employees
6: and people who are familiar with the uh, dynamics within the group, and um, they confirmed that um, Apple makes up more than half of their um, annual contributions. Um, and in 2020, that means that Apple was giving at least um, you know $4.5 million. And that is a, a pretty large price tag when it comes to Washington trade associations. Even the highest end are usually between $1 to $2 million. Um, And uh, former employees I spoke to said the percentage of their contributions is probably much higher. Um, And, you know, in my conversations, I learned that um, Apple lobbyists and lawyers regularly weigh in on, you know, policy positions that the group should take, policy areas the group should focus on. If you look at, um, you know, what the group advocates on the most, it's antitrust, obviously the top priority for Apple, patents, you know, certain kinds of patent reforms that Apple has prioritized, such as something called FRAND, um, broadband, also something Apple's interested in. So um, there's pretty much a a one-to-one relationship between their policy priorities and Apple's.
2: Now of course all big tech companies have pretty immense lobbying operations. How does Apple in your experience differ from, you know, an Alphabet or a Meta or an Amazon? Apple, um, for years,
6: has distinguished itself from the other big tech companies by having a much uh, more muted Washington presence um, you know when uh, Steve Jobs even was uh, overseeing the first kind of entry into Washington, he said, "I think our products will speak for themselves in the halls of Congress. you know I don't think we have to play um, uh, Tim Cook has also carried this forward I don't think we have to." Pay, uh, play the dirty Washington games, you know, they don't have a pack, they don't give direct campaign contributions, but these last couple of years in which Apple has come under the limelight have really shown that they have to get engaged and they have to be, you know, uh, telling their story in Washington, they have to be spending money, and now they're just kind of catching up with their peers.
2: So what are you going to be following, especially as we get closer to midterms? There's obviously legislation, important legislation, moving through Congress on big tech quickly.
6: Yeah. um, So... It's becoming pretty clear that legislation is not coming to a vote before the midterms. They're leaving open the possibility that it might come to a vote um, in the lame duck, you know, after the midterms. That is incredibly unlikely. So, um, you know, if Republicans retake the House, as polls suggest they might, um, probably antitrust will fall back, um, you know, to back of the shelf and uh, content moderation and censorship claims will come to the fore. So that's what I'm really looking at.
2: Okay. Emily Birnbaum, appreciate your uh, perspective on all of this. As always, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. Let's get back to the markets and our own Ed Ludlow, who's been keeping an eye on Netflix. Ed?
0: Yeah, it was a really volatile session for Netflix, really pushing higher at the open, then swinging back down to a loss in the middle of the session, ultimately closing up 1.5%. The catalyst, at least in the early part of the session, was an upgrade from Oppenheimer, the third upgrade we've seen from analysts this month. And I don't think you'll be surprised to hear, Em, that they're really focused in on the potential for an advertising base tier of subscription price target $325 raising uh, Netflix to outperform and there is a bit of momentum behind the stock in that sense although you come to me as my Bloomberg terminal I've started to pay a lot of attention to this because you give some context Netflix is a stock that's down 60% you see that on the white line on my screen behind me and it's trading very close to the average 12-month 12, 12 month analyst price target in other words if you're down 60% and you're trading at where the street thinks you'll be on a twelve-month basis, there isn't much room for upside, so I think it's going to be really interesting to keep an eye on Netflix and how much momentum does get behind this stock as we move towards an ad-based tier for Netflix. I don't know if I'm—I don't know about ads, Em.
2: <laughs> yes, it certainly would change the Netflix experience. I got to think about that one. Okay, Ed, thank you. Meantime, Climate Week has now kicked off in New York City. The summit taking place alongside the U.N. General Assembly brings together international leaders from business, government and civil society to showcase global climate action. Let's talk about how tech can help with that. Christian Anderson, co-founder of Watershed, a software platform that helps businesses uh Get to net zero carbon faster is with us now. Christian, thank you so much for joining us. So, you know, the bigger question is, are these big companies, tech companies in particular, actually making these hard decisions, making compromises to get to net zero faster?
7: So Watershed works with these large companies across industries, across geographies. That's tech companies like Airbnb and DoorDash. That's also big companies in other industries like Walmart, world's largest retailer like some of the largest asset firms by assets under management. And our focus with these companies is to take a data driven approach to their own supply chains. So for a long time, corporate climate was synonymous with low quality offsets and not with actual reduction work on the company's own footprint. And that's where our customers are focusing.
2: So are companies making hard choices? Sometimes when you gather that data, uh, you, you might not like what it looks like. <laughs>
7: It is definitely true that every company who's new to climate work is surprised by something they learn in the data, but actually I'd say on the positive side, where for companies both cost reduction and investment in long-term lower risk and better quality technology tend to go hand in hand with their climate work now i think it takes the data to see that but these companies i was mentioning like walmart or large asset managers these are these are sophisticated businesses who are known for making business first decisions and who have chosen to double down and triple down on their climate work because these are positive investments for the company over the three plus year time horizon.
2: So you would say that these companies are making those tough calls when faced with the choice?
7: I would say so. I think the climate action that most companies are going to take. Is the climate action that is in the intersection of good for the business and the return on investment for the business on the one hand, and also good for the climate on the other hand. The the good news on climate now versus 10 years ago is that 10 years ago, there just was not enough climate action that was in the money for businesses. A company that was profit motivated was not going to get far on its climate reduction. That has changed over recent years, and technology progress is putting climate action more and more into the money for companies, where now it's the case that I'd say every large company with operational control in its supply chain has available to it 10%, 20%, 40% emission reductions that go hand-in-hand with sound business investment decision. And that, that's what can be ubiquitous. Some companies will go out of the money on their climate work, but what will become ubiquitous is climate action that's good for the business.
2: Can you give us an example of where your technology helped and led to a business making a certain decision that was really consequential?
7: Absolutely. So where businesses often focus early and where Watershed Directs companies is clean energy purchasing for the company, and over time for their suppliers as well where there's public case studies of companies who by investing in you know first clean energy for their own what's called in the industry scope 2 carbon footprint and then second investing in energy purchasing for their sort of tier one suppliers like maybe the manufacturers that they work with directly they can both Reduce the carbon footprint, which for most companies is almost entirely from the supply chain. I think people can think of corporate climate as like the light bulbs in the office, but no, it's so much about supply chain, manufacturing, heavy industry, heavy materials. So where we direct companies is to that supply chain to clean energy investment first and then looking for – suppliers with alternate agricultural or industrial practices that the company can preferentially purchase from in a way that then brings emissions down.
2: What impact do you think President Biden's climate bill will
7: actually have? I think the impact will be fantastic because it brings more carbon reduction into the money. Like this was a very business focused bill in a way that I think Watershed and our customers found quite exciting where it was all about subsidy of industry manufacturing clean technology development and deployment so it expands that set of tech that is good for climate on the one hand and also in the money for businesses now it will take years in some case to expand the envelope but part of why i think the data that watershed provides is important to our customers is the decisions that they're making are often about capital investments that will pay off or not for their company long-term. That's why the data feels high stakes, like what will be the return on investment, both from a financial and a climate perspective. So these decisions often take years to play out on the multi-year horizon the Inflation Reduction Act, the Biden bill, I think is going to be great for bringing more clean technology into the money for businesses.
2: We're obviously facing a global energy crisis. How do you expect that to impact tech companies' decision-making and, you know, some of the investments that they're they've been hoping to make, but you know, maybe the the energy crisis will make them think twice.
7: Watershed has a front row seat on this decision-making because The data that we look at for our companies is their spend data and investment data globally outside the climate context as well. And the the energy crisis is going to be severe for many businesses in many geographies. Um, The tailwinds on climate investment, at least – over the past three to six months have been much stronger than any headwinds and climate investment remains very high. And then second, on the energy crisis in particular, it's this two-edged sword where in the immediate term, countries and companies will rightly turn to whatever fuel sources is available, particularly to get through the winter, particularly in Europe. And then at the same time, it's pushing companies to assess What is my carbon exposure and fossil fuel exposure in the supply chain? And I think companies play a very important role as early adopters in new energy sources and new energy projects offtake agreements there to get projects rolled out and reduce that dependence in the longer term.
2: All right. Christian Anderson, co-founder of Watershed. Thank you. Got a big week covering climate tech coming up. Meantime, Twitter co-founder Jack Dorsey will be questioned under oath Tuesday in the company's lawsuit against his longtime friend Elon Musk. According to court filings, Dorsey will be questioned by attorneys from both sides via Zoom Tuesday morning. Dorsey was subpoenaed last month by Musk. Coming up, cryptocurrency slides to their lowest in months. We're going to talk about the post-merge slump, crypto trends to watch, and more with Michael Anderson, co-founder of Framework Ventures. This is Bloomberg.
8: Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com TechSF.
2: Jersey sent Bitcoin to a three-month low Monday as sentiment took a knock from a wave of monetary tightening that's set to stretch from Europe to the U.S. this week. And now that the Ethereum merge is done, the second largest token, Ether, is at a two-month low, unwinding its short-lived jump in June, spurred by the hype around the the blockchain's upgrade. I want to break it all down now with Michael Anderson, co-founder of the DeFi-focused venture capital firm, Framework Ventures. So, Michael, what do you think is going on here? A slump in Ether and Bitcoin as well?
9: Yeah, well, I think over the last, call it, three to six months, we've had the buildup of the merge. The merge was highly successful last week. Um, and now I think we're entering that period of time where we're searching for a new narrative. Um, but really what we advise at Framework for all of our portfolio companies or entrepreneurs that we meet with is to really take a longer-term horizon perspective of, of these markets. It's really difficult when you have early-stage technology meeting public market liquidity uh, to not pay attention to the to the prices. Uh, but it, it's really important for all of the, the builders out there to keep their blinders on and just keep building.
2: If you could pinpoint one or, or two things, is there something you think is behind this, whether it's valid or not?
9: Well, I, I think maybe one of the ideas uh, that was floated is just that this is the unwinding of a number of different trades that were put on that led up to the merge. Um, and these trades to be basis trades uh, or, or people that you know took out uh, positions and options or futures that Related up to the merge itself, um, and I, I think the unwinding process in uh, the the backdrop of a macro uh, negative sentiment market um, is going to have more uh, volatility than you would expect if it was a a, a different market um, what, from a macro perspective.
2: So, what is the crypto community buzzing about now that the merge has happened, and what are you excited to invest in?
9: Well, the merge was only last week, uh, so it's been just a, a little bit of time. But really, when we launched this most recent fund at the end of March, uh, one of the theses that we had that was really core to this new fund was was gaming and Web3 Gaming, GameFi being the real narrative that we thought would take over, leading to hundreds of millions of consumers in the space with, with wallets um, and transacting using these games. Uh, and, and we think that that narrative is actually now in, in the crosshairs of what's next, what's to come. Uh, over the next three to six months, we think there's going to be 20 to 25 games that launch that have a more sustainable model than maybe what we've seen so far with, with the likes of Axie Infinity. Um, and these games are being built by by people who've built games before that are f- for the first time building in, in the blockchain space. Um, so we're really excited to see these entrepreneurs come in. And it's only going to be a couple more months until we see these games launch.
2: NFTs have been in a bust cycle, but since the merge, we've seen NFTs gaining momentum, prices rising. Is this the, the rebound of the NFT market or is this going to be short-lived?
9: Well, I, one of the things that I think is really important to note about the merge, um, and and this is one of the success points, is just the fact that you have the shift of proof of work to proof of stake representing the amount of energy uh, in in the size of the country of Finland. Um, so that reduction in the amount of global energy consumption that is required to proliferate this network is a major change. And I think the art world in particular has been one of the most negative against the proof of work consensus model uh, because that what's been required to, to use and transact in these NFT marketplaces. Now that we see the shift and the energy reduction, therefore, I think we're going to start to see a lot more activity in the NFT market because the narrative, the negative sentiment is just gone at this point. Um, most most NFTs are transacted on proof of state chains uh, after last week.
2: Now, I'm, I'm curious, given, you know, your former life at Snapchat, where you were a product manager, what you think about The future of monetizing the metaverse, we were just doing a story earlier about how Facebook meta stock has plunged. Mark Zuckerberg has personally lost $71 billion, um, in part because investors just aren't excited about the metaverse or are skeptical about the metaverse. What do you think the, the opportunities are to monetize in the metaverse? Are you excited about it?
9: Absolutely. Um, I think the definition of the metaverse is a bit of a nebulous one, though. Um, This is exactly why we're excited about games. Games represents not only a new platform for game developers to build on top of, but really what that means is a new monetization model where free to play games, which have historically monetized at a one to three percent rate, uh, are are probably going to have a different monetization model, a different business model altogether. Just based on the fact that you're imbuing a value into an NFT, which could be represented presented in the game, which means that there's a secondary marketplace for it. And you're not just spending to be able to spend in the game. And then the second that you leave that game, you lose that value. I think the, the ability for game developers to think creatively about how these monetization models can interact with a new type of game, a uh, new type of de- ecosystem, which you know, we might want to call the metaverse, uh, that I think is a fundamental change and a fundamental shift. Um, so when we say we're excited about gaming, what we really mean is we're excited about the new business models for gaming, uh, because those have been changing rapidly over the last couple of years.
2: All right. Lots to continue to watch. Michael Anderson, co-founder of the DeFi-focused venture capital firm, Framework Ventures. Thank you for stopping by. Meantime, Uber said the hacker responsible for last week's data breach is affiliated with a notorious extortion group named Lapsus. The group has targeted other tech companies, including Microsoft, Cisco, Okta, and Samsung. Just this year, Uber says it doesn't believe the hacker got into its public-facing systems like user accounts or databases that store sensitive information. The ride-sharing company says it'll continue to work with the FBI and the Department of Justice to investigate. The craze was sweeping Hollywood, with celebrities and studios jumping on the non-fungible train. But with crypto sinking, the enthusiasm seems to be dwindling. Joining us now, Bloomberg's Lucas Shaw. So interestingly Lucas, post Ethereum merge, the prices of NFTs have ticked up a bit, triggering some people to talk about maybe a rebound. How is Hollywood thinking about NFTs?
10: Well, everything in Hollywood is going to come a little bit after what's happening in the market, because first you need someone to have an idea, then they have to sell it, then they have to get someone to fund it, then they have to actually make it. Uh, you know, Hollywood, like most industries, got very excited about the potential of, uh, of NFTs and, and web three. Uh, Late last year and and early this year, there were a lot of different projects, either using NFTs as sort of a a fan engagement tool uh, or as the the origin intellectual property or character upon which a property could be based. Um, Some of those are still going, uh, but as as one person told me, most of the projects kind of dried up overnight earlier this year.
2: Who were the biggest celebrities who were really in on this? And does it seem like they're... Not into it um, anymore?
10: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you have a mix, right? So there are the celebrities who just bought NFTs. You know, Jimmy Fallon bought a Bored Ape. Stephen Curry bought a Bored Ape. Reese Witherspoon was uh, someone who was very into it. Uh, I think it, it, it's a mix, right? There, there As in the, kind of the broader market, there's some celebrities who... Uh, we're just kind of interested in trying it out because it seemed like a quick way to make a money, make money, or because everyone else was talking about it. And then there's some people who are kind of true believers in its potential. I think most people were probably in the former camp, just you know looking to try something out. Reese, Reese Witherspoon strikes me as someone who maybe they're not going to end up being able to sell this unscripted show that they had, but will keep exploring and mining that area to see if there's some potential there. Shawn Mendez we'll see. You know, he was he was just on the screen in that graphic. He and his producing partner did option. Uh, an NFT as a potential character will, f- will you know, I-, I have yet to find out if they're actually going to make anything from that character, though.
2: So your sense is that, uh, you know, some folks in the media and entertainment industry will continue to try to explore this. But as of now, attention is being diverted to other projects.
10: Yeah, I mean, most of these the, these big media companies have far more pressing issues right now when it comes to you know slowing growth on their streaming services, whether we're going to enter a recession. There's some of these macroeconomic issues that make kind of sorting out fun, more emerging technologies, less of a, of a, a big issue uh, or kind of not on the front burner. But there are people like Dave Broom, who is a kind of creator of The Biggest Loser, produced a bunch of shows for Netflix, very close friends with Netflix co-CEO Ted Sarandos. And he basically stopped making film and TV and he has devoted himself full-time to an NFT company.
2: All right. Lucas Shaw, thank you for joining us to weigh in on that. We'll keep monitoring how these uh, celebrities and media and entertainment companies continue to weigh in on NFTs. That does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Tomorrow, we've got a conversation with California's Attorney General, Rob Bonta. His thoughts on state the state's antitrust suit against Amazon. Why, that is a big deal. You don't want to miss it. And don't forget to check out our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg.